Namaskar. I am indeed honored and humbled to be invited here on such a, well, firstly, a very distinguished institution with great heritage and also for delivering this uh, distinguished lecture. Because it's a learned audience and a Sanskrit university, I want to address those I consider to be traditional Sanskrit scholars. That's the group I'm here for. And I humbly seek collaboration with this group. My purpose has been to do Purvapaksh of Western Indology. We have its great Purvapaksh tradition. Today we are not facing issues with Buddhists or Purvamimamsa or the old Charvaks. So while it's important to learn the Purvapaksh that was done in those days, the point is the real application of the technique has to be done in today's context. Today's Purvapaksh we have to do with today's Purvapakshin. And so the tradition of Indology has been taken by Westerners today. The most prestigious places to get a PhD are in the West. Even the traditional scholars will tell you that. The most important places to publish your paper are controlled by Western journals and Western conferences. So something serious has happened. Until Ingalls time, there was a genuine respect attempted by American scholars. We had European problems, European Orientalists, but the Americans were not necessarily, were not in large scale following that. The Americans were trying to, because of the influence of people like Ingalls, they were trying to see things from the insider point of view. By insider, I mean the person who's a practitioner of a Vedic tradition, who has Shraddha, who has Sadhana, who thinks that it is his Svadharma. And outsiders are people who don't see it this way. They study it as a language of those people, a dead culture, dead language of the past, looking for what's wrong in it, what's abusive, human rights problems, looking for a Marxist leftist perspective to see what how it was the language of a caste, looking for divisiveness, portraying it as part of politics of oppression and so on. So there is the insider view, which I think is represented by scholars in places like this. And then there is the outsider view. Both are okay. We have a tradition of debate. So we are not into banning, blaming, accusing, abusing. We respect opponents. But the control of the tradition, its discourse, has shifted too much into the hands of the outsiders. That balance has been lost. In contrast with this, the dominant China studies is done by Confucian institutes controlled by China. Their journals driven under the control of Chinese editors, editorial boards, their conferences, the most prestigious places to get a PhD in China studies is not Harvard, 
not Columbia, not Oxford, but Chinese universities. Same is true of Japan studies, similar thing you can say of Russia studies, French. See, these civilizations are studied in their own language. The most prestigious scholarship on Mandarin is done in Mandarin language journals, French in French journals. The fact that I'm speaking in English, the fact that I have to speak in English, the fact that Indology is done in English, most papers are written in English on the Sanskrit is the problem. I am a product of the problem, except I became self-conscious of the problem and started doing something about it. And I started utilizing my knowledge as an insider to the problem, how to expose, how to stand out of it and criticize it and bring it to your knowledge. So my goal is to bring to your attention today a few things which insiders of our tradition must know. Once they know these things, you will be equipped to give the Uttar Paksh. If I can tell you the tattva of the issues with Western Indology that I find and request that we work together and you develop the Uttar Paksh, then we have a good team. Now, the people who have taken control of American Orientalism today, post Ingalls, I call them Charvak 2.0, Charvak 2.0. Like the Charvak 1.0, they are atheists. They dismiss the Veda as Shruti. They dismiss the value of the sacred. It's not that they refute one's interpretation of Paramarthika and try to give another interpretation. They dismiss the whole thing. In the Paramarthika Vivarika continuum, integral unity, they see the purpose, the relevance of the text only through Vivarika and dismiss the Paramarthika as uh, irrational, primitive, abusive, exploitation, superstition, that kind of thing. And, and they cite Western scholars as the authority, people you never heard of, people like Vico. 17th century Italian who came up with this theory of, of uh, you know, the uh, transcendent and the imminent and why the transcendent since it can't be evaluated, we can't measure it, we can't verify it, it is, it is pre-rational and so on. So a whole lot of that has been projected by the Western Indologists citing such Western theories, Western Siddhant to interpret our, our culture. Now, someone who doesn't want to be named, and I won't violate that, said that the Charvaks of today, without using the word Charvaks of today, have prided that politically they had Castro and Jyoti Bashu and ideologically they have people like Sheldon Pollock, the post, uh, post Ingalls American Orientalism. And I think that's a fair description, fair description of the uh, the, the way the, the new Charvaks are aligned with the left, they are, they are leading the left. And unlike the Charvak 1.0, they are more powerful materially, they have more money, they have a lot of funding, they are part of the western nexus, so they have the power of the global, globalization power, the power of institutions, 
The previous charbags were not working for some foreign nexus. They were just humble people. They were the similarities are that they were the today's charbags are good scholars. Technically, they are well trained. They are hard working. Some of the hard working Sanskrit scholars, hardest working you will find are Westerners. Technically, very accurate. Technically, really dedicated, but not with the same shraddha, except as a pretense. Not with the same conviction that this is really Shruti, but more like this is some text I'm looking at. I'm trying to see male dominating female, Brahmin dominating Shudra. What they're looking for is not the sacredness that we see. So, yes, they are also full of praise, but they're full of praise as a poetry, but not as sacred. It's like if you have a murti, which is you have done pran pratishta, that is divine, that is deity. But if you give it to the archaeological survey of India, it becomes an archaeological site. There is no puja done there. It is just a beautiful carving. So when you go to Mahabalipuram and somebody gives you a tour, they do not say this is a, a place of worship, which is how it was. You can see that. So there is a difference between appreciating something as sacred and appreciating the same thing as secular art. There is a difference there. So this secularization of Sanskrit, Vedas, the interpretation of Vedas, Ramayana, Mahabharata, all the texts leads then to Another problem, then removing the sacred leaves kind of hollow because the context has been removed. The context in which we are seeing it has been removed. So a new context has to be added. So the Western Indologists add the context. The context is human rights problems, social sciences, political domination, feminism, class struggle, etc. And they can appreciate it, keeping that in mind. Like the archaeologist telling me this beautiful carving, but don't think of anything sacred about it. So when you remove the sacred, a new context has to be supplied. And the person who is in control of the discourse, the Western Indologists, have the power to supply the context. So they have very successfully supplied a new context of, of cultural and social abusiveness as the thing to look for and political domination as the thing to look for. Now, I will introduce one or two terms that are being used in Western Indology, which hardly any traditional scholar I came across knows about. I want to introduce them because that's what I can bring is how to decode what they're saying and then you can take it further. The first the term I want to introduce is literarization. Literarization. There is an extra R. It is not literarization but literarization. Now, literarization is a common term which means being able to read and write. Literizing a society means you are literate, you can read. But the theory says, the theory they have says, 
that literizing a society only is the first stage which means you can write you can read and write but before the language and its texts become political weapons for social cultural oppression to make them successful they have to become more sophisticated with certain structures infused into them which become like weapons so this weaponization of the language which is not ordinary language ordinary language you order a cup of chai you order a taxi like that that's literization literization with the extra r literization is the stage when sanskrit got infused the word infused means injected infiltrated with certain structures that make it suitable for domination and oppression these structures have to do with grammar these structures have to do with metaphysical cosmology that male god divine king shudras are to be excluded women are to be excluded so all these ideologies have to be introduced also so it is no longer just a language it is a language infused with certain structures and so and all the itihas is part of the content brought in to boost these ideas so literarization is the subsequent stage when a language is ready to be used for political purposes those of you who are from it it's like development tools so microsoft produces some platform but third parties have to develop apps various packages for the end user so between microsoft and the end user you have third party packages doing various mod, various applications so microsoft supplies them with development tools to make their job easier that role of sanskrit is called literarization sanskrit develop sanskrit brahmins grammarians people writing itihas developed these tools to literarize sanskrit thereby giving the development tools necessary for various people to write political kavya political statements oppressive statements so language is if you just know how to read and write it's literization when the language is infused with these devices the technologies that allow expression of politics political expression then it is called literarization of language and the claim is made that sanskrit is the most beautiful elegant powerful language everybody in india claps because they don't see comma after that what is it said because it is the most ideal weapon of for literized it has been literized and become the most ideal weapon for political use i would say that what makes the way to interpret sanskrit and what made sanskrit special as devabhasha is not the literization for political purposes but the sacredization for sacred purposes so we are in competition over what type of interpretive lens we should use philology 
as you well know, is the field of making sense of texts, how to interpret texts. That is philology. So there's many theories of philology. There's Western philologies, there's Indian philologies. We have our own philology, own way of interpreting a particular text. So if they remove this, they have coined a term political philology. So Western Indologists that I criticize openly say that the lens to use is political philology, which means looking for political, political motives in writing all these texts. Valmiki wrote a text sponsored by kings for political purposes. That's what they say very clearly. It's got nothing to do with sacredness of Ram. It serves a political purpose. Vedas serve a political purpose because they, to keep the order of the cosmos, to keep the order of society, uh, Brahmins have to be kept dominant. Kings have to make sure of that. In return, the, king, the Brahmin make, gives the king prashastis, a lot of rights prashastis, make him happy. So king and Brahmin are in a collaboration, maybe a conspiracy to dominate people. So there is a political motive they keep looking for. In response to the theories of political philology, I propose in my book the term sacred philology. That this is philology looking for sacredness. That is the insider position, I claim. And the, the position they are claiming is political philology. Not only do they want to do political philology, which is interpreting the text to, to uncover the abusiveness, uncover the social oppression. They want to go one step further and do liberate the people from the oppression liberate the Indian people from the oppression of their own Sanskriti. So I'm here to liberate you from your own heritage because your heritage is oppressive. You are poor, held back, lot of issues. I'll show you all of those are the fault of your heritage and I'm here to liberate you. So it's a two part project. Political philology is a term for me to interpret and diagnose Purvapaksha of India. I'm doing, the Westerner is doing using political philology. Then I'll give you a recipe. I'll give you my Uttar Paksh, how to deal with it. What you guys should do. The term they've come up with that for is liberation philology. Means I'm liberating you. Now we get very happy liberation philology must be about moksha. Nothing to do with moksha. Okay. It's nothing to do with moksha. It's like, you know, the use of terms is very clever. The first George Bush war, the first war on Iraq was called Operation Desert Freedom. Operation Desert Freedom. Freedom. We are here to free you. Like that. Like the British, we are here to civilize you. What a great thing. Thank you, sir. Please civilize me. Yeah. Like that. So, uh, the term liberation philology is not liberation as we see it. This, they see it as liberation from the oppression, abusiveness in the Vedic tradition. So it's a very deep, insidious, left-wing, Marxist ideology. It is truly the return of the Charvaks. Because, and I, it's a compliment. Because to tell, call them Charvaks is dignified. It means you are good scholars. We are not, we are not contesting that like we did not dismiss the Charvaks as bad people and useless people and don't know scholarship. We said they're good scholars, but we disagree with their interpretive lens. 
we disagree with their premises so i have no disrespect for the people i criticize and i want my supporters and followers to please be very respectful of them it they must not engage in any insulting anything hitting below the belt mudslinging that's bad it, we have to keep the dignity alive my only concern is with the interpretive lens premises assumptions they're making which are i'm also not saying they're wrong i'm saying they're different from the inter insider perspective so i'm also saying that the outsiders are entitled to this perspective the charvak 2.0 has a right to do what he's doing it's just that the insider has to now talk back has to answer back now just like the allegation the claim is that sanskrit was literarized to become effective as a means of expression of political domination political power in this book i reverse the argument english has been literarized by the western indologist as a weapon for western indology because they are using sophisticated complicated structures like the word literization itself which traditionalists can't understand it is a code word amongst them the way they are accusing that sanskrit brahmins came up with these very sophisticated convoluted grammars and theories and philosophies that only they understood so between them they could come up with this thing to dominate and oppress and the average person could not respond same way i'm saying i'm giving them the same compliment that the western indologists have turned ordinary english it's not enough for you traditional people to know how to read ordinary english you have to read and understand literarized english where they will use words like gramsci's theory huh? benjamin's theory you won't know what they're talking about vico's theory what are they talking about they're talking about your culture your subject in a language in a terminology and idiom you won't understand so many of you will take the approach that i don't have anything to do with it i'll take i i ignore them unfortunately most of our people did that ignored them so we never gave them a purva paksha uttar paksha response some became bombastic quick to dismiss saying okay they are fools they are not fools you can't dismiss them like that charvaks we gave a response charvak 2.0 we have to give them a response you cannot just dismiss them and then there is others who said i'll join them i'll sell out i'll sell out because they need people like me so a lot of traditional sanskrit scholars have been sold out i'm sorry to tell you but that's true there is a job opportunity i came across this young fellow in delhi university sanskrit department doing his phd joined he came and he said i want to read all about your book and all these people i want to become an expert so i thought he is going to become an expert part of my home team to critique after spending a lot of time with him he says i'm doing my phd and i want to do my phd on this whole topic so i was very happy so i said where is your phd going to be he says it's going to be in harvard so i said okay so why why what's the point he says no no once i do it in harvard sir don't worry i will do my i will not uh, compromise but that's how they start i know any number of cases i know any number of cases of people have tried to help who are in trouble 
with their dissertation and they have to make a compromise they have to make a choice so at some point you stop fighting you stop arguing and uh, you give in or you get compromised and sidelined I know examples of people who gave up and came back I know examples of people who got the degree but never got a job never got a job and uh, I know examples of people who compromise their dissertation in order to co uh, comply and so uh, they're looking for people who pass this test all these filters then they can be very useful these are the intellectual sepoys the British had physical military sepoys now we have intellectual Sanskritized sepoys they're very useful they are all over the Indian media and many academic institutions uh, one of my uh, discussions is in Jawaharlal Nehru University Delhi I'm looking forward to that uh, one of them is in Tata Institute of Social Sciences Bombay I'm looking forward to that uh, these are the bastions of sort of left-wing I'm looking forward to that I want debate and we put it on YouTube so you can watch it so the the Charvak 2.0 is in my opinion more dangerous and uh, need to have a response which they've never had from our side it is not uh, their fault it is our people who are not capable of responding because we have not understood this literarized English is very academically heavy English one more technical term they've got which I will mention there's so many you should read my book there's a term called the aestheticization of power the aestheticization of power it was started by Benjamin in, uh, one of the leaders in the Frankfurt School of Marxism to explain why why Russia had a revolution communist revolution when they were in economic difficulty but Germany did not Germany did not have a when Germans had a depression rather than the revolution of the peasants and proletariat to overthrow which is what Marxism wants it actually was the rise of Hitler so one elitism was not replaced and toppled by the public by the masses but another elitism take over how did it why is it that the earlier elitism was not toppled by a communist revolution but by Hitler so that they had to come up with a theory the theory they call aestheticization of power and then a few decades later Western Indologists trained in Marxism and in the aestheticization of power theory applied it to explain the rise of Sanskrit across Asia and Southeast Asia that Sanskrit rose and spread by the same process as the Nazis spread so what is this process the process called aestheticization of power means that aesthetics poetics sandaria beauty through dance art in the case of Nazis a lot of cinema a lot of marches symbols showing we are great we are all happy we are doing well we're winning huh? blaming others some Jews or somebody so the aestheticization of power was to turn the whole problem of uh, no jobs people had unemployment divert their attention towards aesthetics and stay in power become more powerful by using such media 
good use of media and uh, aesthetical devices, caviar, to uh, blame people and to look like we are the good people and the blame goes somewhere else and the public don't then overthrow you. There is no communist revolution to overthrow the king because he's aestheticized the power, he's made people very happy. It's like if today uh, the public is ready to revolt and the king and the rulers just make sure we win cricket matches. Everybody's happy. And we have Shahrukh Khan going around doing Bhangra and everybody's happy. And we have great poetry, drama about the greatness of this culture and that culture and this desh and this locality and keep using discourse and narratives to keep people fighting, arguing with each other. And in the process of doing that, the rulers can stay in power. That is called the aestheticization of power. This was theory a Marxist theory developed to explain the rise of Hitler. And this aestheticization of power theory has been used by Indologists to explain the rise of Sanskrit. They call it the Sanskrit cosmopolis. Means it was a cosmopolis across much of Asia. Many kings of many cultures, many ethnicities adopted Sanskrit. Why they adopted Sanskrit is because it was a device, it was a tool for the aestheticization of power. So literarization is the technology which Sanskrit was infused with, by, like Microsoft develops development tools. And then the, given this technology of literarization comes the application of it in the aestheticization of power. So it's a very interesting thing. In my book, I turn this around. I say that these Western scholars are aestheticizing power, their power. They are getting from our rulers the Padamshiri. From Narayan Murthy, they are getting uh, millions of dollars funding. And like the Brahmins are accused of writing prashastis for the king, these people are writing prashastis for the Murthy family. A lot of prashastis are quoted that this is the great family, they are doing these, these. I am saying in their book, they are saying, here is a prashasti to the king. And this is why they were sponsored. And on the next, I'm saying here is a Prashasti now by the new current anglicized Brahmins, Prashasti, their sponsors. Yeah. So this literarized English filled with idiom, filled with ideology, filled with such complicated structures that you write a English, they will not publish it. They'll say it's not good English. It's not ordinary English we're talking about. Very sophisticated English you have to write and read. So this literarized English able to do the aestheticization of power for them is exactly what I'm, I'm saying your theory is so good I'm going to apply the same theory to you that's what I'm doing this is how you have to do Purv Paksh it's not a, I'm not insulting anybody I'm not talking uh, in a wrong way this is how our tradition says you have to turn it around give an argument so I'm doing that now another thing that they have is that there is no an argument they give is that there is no Indian civilization or Indian nation. That's a point they often make. The British created a nation state. It didn't exist. Now, I argue back by saying you have to look at words like Sanskriti. Sanskriti is our civilization. Because Sanskriti is it, not just language, it is the arts, it is the philosophy, it is the architecture, it is all kinds of things. And the response they are giving is that Sanskriti must be a new word. It did not really exist. 
Now I need insiders to tell me whether Sanskriti or something like it existed because one of the arguments I'm having is they're saying the word Sanskriti or a word similar to it did not exist. It is a recent construction. This is what they're saying and I'm not knowledgeable enough to argue but I raise it as a red flag that you guys have to work on. And then I argue that you are looking for nation. Why don't you look for Rashtra? Why don't you look for Rashtra? And why don't you look for the fact that Adi Shankara went all over. There must be a sense of unity that he went to these places. Before that, we have Shakti Pithams. Before that, we have Kumbh Mela. The earliest Kumbh Mela recorded in the Akhara. The Akharas are the sadhu groups that own and organize the Kumbh Mela. I've been talking to one of the Akhara leaders and he says that if you come to Haridwar, we'll show you the records. It goes back to eight to 10,000 years. And the reason you know the date is because they cite the nakshatras, the state of the sky. And software can tell you how old a particular date was when the nakshatra was a certain way. Software, modern software can tell you that. So they, by, by that you can date that certainly 8,000 years, some evidence up to 10,000 years back from today, Hakumu uh, Mela was happening. And it records their Akhara records show who came from where they came, who was the leader of this Akhara, that Akhara. So the continuity of a sense of unity in various ways has existed. It is not political unity is not the only kind of unity. Political unity, whether there was one tax-paying, uh, tax-collecting king and he had an army and he had customs and immigration and he was protecting his boundary with the military. That's one kind of civilization and one kind of uh, nation-state. We've had our own civilization with a different kind of nation, which we call Rashtra. And Rashtra is not really translatable. It is one of the Sanskrit non-translatables. And as long as you are defending the Rashtra, and not necessarily saying we have a nation or put a footnote saying that we mean by nation not what they mean but our own idea. As long as you're doing that you can prove it. But I need help to substantiate these arguments in greater detail. Now I could go on by giving more and more but I want you to read my book. My, my this book, is you. called The Battle for Sanskrit. There are three questions in the byline. And these are the three debatable points between insiders and outsiders. Is Sanskrit political or sacred? Oppressive or liberating? Dead or alive? That's the three questions. The whole argument between insiders and outsiders can be turned into this. The outsiders saying that the whole tradition of Sanskrit and its important core texts is oppressive, is political and is a dead system of language. It has the ideas of oppression continue. The original language which developed them with the technology and the liter literization is dead language. And those who are on our side, the insiders say that Sanskrit is sacred, liberating and living. So this is, this is what the battle for Sanskrit is about. Many attempts were made to stop this book from being published. Some of you know it and some of you helped me fight back.
at the Bangkok Sanskrit Congress, I was asked to give a talk on this book, which I told them is coming. They were very excited. And I think you were there. Your niece was there. And you know, when I gave this talk, what a huge applause from the Indians in the audience and what a lot of anger from the Westerners. Within 24 hours, tweets and emails started coming to me threatening this, that, lobbies going to the publishers saying don't publish this and that. And then some one allegation after another to prevent the book from coming. So much for all these people who are so-called free speech and intellectual freedom. It seems it works only one way and not when they are criticized. So a petition was put out calling on the publishers to ban my books. 250 people, scholars, signed it. Thanks to some of you, a counter petition was put together telling the publishers not to do that but to continue my works. They got 250 signatures and we got 11,000 signatures. Then they started putting articles. So Indian media, so uneducated, ill-informed, full of inferiority complex, anything some white man has said, they'll just copy it as given, did not bother verifying the allegations made against me the Hindu posted a big article against me, completely parroting what those guys were saying. As if I'm already a well-known person to their readers. The fact is, I'm right, this is my fifth book. They have never reviewed my book, any book. I'm unknown to their readers. Suddenly, I'm so important that accusing me and alleging me becomes strategic for them. So, you, it would be different if they were first writing about my books and now they want to criticize. That would be fine. I have no problems if they wrote a negative review, completely ignoring and every single time we send all these books to for review to the mainstream media just prefer to ignore it. All of a sudden, big euphoria that let's attack him, completely quoting one side. So I wrote email after email asking for a chance to write a rebuttal. It was turned down. It was turned down. In fact, an article was written in the Hindu on our right to refuse Rajiv Malhotra's uh, uh, request for a rebuttal. We are using editorial discretion, which we are entitled to, to refuse him the right. An article came. It's not just they were silent and privately said no. They put an article saying, we are saying no to you. This is the state of this so-called intolerance and this so-called we are this intellectual freedom and so on. So I'm just telling you, the mere fact that this book is out, we have won the first battle for Sanskrit. That's what it is. So there's many battles written in this. There is also an argument with one of the prominent Peetams who were in the process of creating multi-million dollar chairs in American Ivy Leagues under the control of the same people I'm criticizing. They were, willing, they were in the process of handing millions of dollars, letting these people claim, letting these people set up academic chairs for their founder, for their spiritual guru hundreds of years ago. 
in the name of their guru to teach their guru giving chairs to the charvaks it is so ridiculous and how my debates happened with this group trying to discourage them at least i must say they honored my request that they should not proceed until my book is out then they can evaluate and decide whatever they want to do at least i must say that i while we have not won that battle at least we delayed the outcome because they were about to announce it within 4 weeks in 19 in 2014 and they haven't done it for one and a half years and i'm very grateful they at least waited and i hope that they will reconsider their decision because once that very eminent peetum were taken over is were if it were taken over and they would set up one chair then four peet four mathas in the iv leagues they would set up four different uh, iv league mathas to represent them overseas then it would set a precedence to go to another peetum and another lineage and another sampradaya and keep doing it and all of us our tradition would be quickly sold out because we have so many people who are very grateful who are in wanting to be in the good books of the ivy leagues because it makes them feel very proud and high, high they join the high table of success they got a seat at the table in new york city on some editorial on some advisory board and some big shots come they get photo ops they can send it back home saying now i'm one of these white people i've joined i'm an honorary white so this kind of a inferiority complex inferiority complex drives our people that may that may be another reason why we haven't given a response because some of us are too much in their to wanting to be craving there in their side too much so what i'm looking for is a team of traditional scholars who can do what i can't do because they have dedicated their lives studying different things in our tradition i can supply them seminars and workshops to tell them the purva paksha to tell them the tatva of what the other side is saying then i want institution like this to create small teams of good scholars to give responses i would like to come back every 3 years 3 every 3 months and have these little one day workshops and seminars create uh, between bangalore chennai and a few places in these two states we can create we have enough talent we can create what i call the intellectual home team the intellectual kshatriya home team the team of people who can give an answer once we have enough of that done then i'd like to invite the western indologist for a proper debate but first we need a team so that's the reason i'm here and the intellectual side to me is the most important the real serious scholar side we have too many people who are not sufficiently who are doing not doing enough tapasya and who are not deep into this issue who just want to quickly go to twitter or facebook and quickly start promoting things and it's more anger it doesn't help emotional kshatriya is not the same thing as intellectual kshatriya what we need here are really solid intellectual chatriyas that's why i'm come i'm spending so much time with sanskrit universities i did one talk a few days ago in the karnataka sanskrit university this is my second one in delhi uh, i'm giving a talk in the sanskrit department of jawala nehru university and uh, in the sanskrit department of uh, 
Delhi University. So I'm looking at these kind of opportunities. I'm also giving talks in the mainstream, like today IIT Madras, more mainstream group, IIT Bombay, and many other places, Ramakrishna Mission. I may get some scholars there too. But I think the Sanskrit universities are the main place where I hope and I feel I should be able to get some uh, get some traction. So with that, I would like to thank you and would love to take your questions. Thank you.